Hello, I'm Chris Henry, one of the hosts of The Green Dot. You're about to listen to an episode featuring Jeff Thatcher, a son of one of the Doolittle Raiders. Between the time of his visit and the airing of this broadcast, we have unfortunately lost the last surviving Doolittle Raider, Dick Cole. Many times throughout this podcast, you'll hear him referred to as still being with us, but unfortunately, he has flown west. Enjoy the episode, and let's keep the Raiders' memories alive. Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land, green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello, and welcome back to another exciting episode of The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. Well, once again, thank you for joining us. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Henry, the EAA Aviation Museum Programs Coordinator. And with me, as always... Tom Charpentier, Government Relations Director. Well, Tom, uh, as I always say, I I enjoy this show. I like doing it. I really enjoy doing it, though, when we have guests because we always get some pretty interesting people to come in here and talk with us. Uh, Besides, people get probably get tired of hearing just you and I talk uh, and geek out about airplane stuff. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Well, today, I uh, I think anybody that is a fan or historian or, or interested in the Doolittle Raid, which was America's first bombing on uh, Japan and Tokyo, um, will recognize the last name Thatcher, uh, one of the crew members of uh, airplane number seven, the ruptured duck, David Thatcher. And today we're very fortunate to have David's son, Jeff Thatcher, here with us. Uh, Jeff, thank you for making the trek out to Oshkosh to be with us today. Uh, thanks, Chris. It's a real pleasure to be here. Now, I have to tell you, as a kid, man, I geeked out watching 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, uh, and, and I'm sure you uh, had seen it uh, multiple times as well. Did it ever dawn on you when you're watching that movie that, like, my gosh, like, that's that's my dad being depicted on, in a Hollywood major Hollywood film? Uh, it, it was, it's kind of surreal when, when you think about your father being depicted as, like, a hero for a, a, a war raid of the magnitude of, of you know, the Doolittle Raid, but um, actually I, I didn't start watching the film until probably late into my, you know, teenage years. And when I was growing up, my dad never talked about the, the Doolittle Raid or his involvement with it. He's, he's like a lot of the people in the greatest generation. I mean, when they got back from the war, they just uh, got into, you know, working and uh, settling down, raising a family and moving forward with their lives. So it, it was later in my life that I, that I really learned about the raid and, and really started and saw the movie. Like a lot of elements of, uh, of World War II history, I feel like there was kind of a period where um, there wasn't a lot of um, there wasn't a lot of press or scholarship about um, the event and then it kind of picked up again. Was that kind of the same thing for the Doolittle Raid? Yeah, it, it as as time has gone on over the like, especially probably over the like the last twenty years or so, it seems like people uh, uh, got renewed their interest in 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 in, in World War Two and, and in the Doolittle Raid specifically. I mean, there, there's a you know, it seems like a hardcore group of folks, kind of like Chris, who may, maybe grew up reading about the Doolittle Raid, saw the movie, and thought it was you know a, a really cool event in America's history but a lot of people just weren't into it for a while and then as the years went on especially as the Raiders um, gathered for their reunions every year and and as time went on and some of them passed away and stuff it seemed to really grab people's attention again. You know I think it's important while we're talking maybe somebody who's newer into aviation uh, we ought to talk about 
what is the Doolittle Raid? Maybe some people listening is the first time they've heard about it. Um, do you want to give us just sort of a sort of a high level overview of, of what it was? Well, it was uh, it was the the first strike back that America did in retaliation for Pearl Harbor, and um, really it's immediately after Pearl Harbor occurred. Um, Franklin President Franklin Roosevelt um, gathered a, a lot of his close advisors um, in into the White House and said, "Hey, w- what can we do to strike back?" and um, it, it took a little little while, but um, some, some Navy personnel got together with some of the Army Air Corps personnel, specifically like Doolittle and, and um, some other folks, and, and they, they came up with a plan. Basically, one of the Navy guys um, saw, uh, happened to see some B-25s taken off the deck of a carrier in the, in the Atlantic, and it, it got him to thinking that maybe that would be a way for um, – a, a raid to be accomplished of that type. So he got in touch with his superior officer. Word got back to, to Doolittle, and Doolittle went to his superior officer. And um, I, I guess the, the rest is, as I say, history, because um, they they gathered a, a, a bunch of uh, people that were involved with B-25s and stuff and asked them if they'd be interested in um, volunteering for a uh, secret um, mission that would take them out of the country for a few months and um, everyone that was involved with the B-25s that they asked about said yeah sure even though they knew nothing about it and so um, they sent them down to Columbia South Carolina <clears throat> for some training and then the, later the crews were assigned to uh, Eglin Air Force Base in Pensacola Florida and that's where they did the majority of the training which which primarily involved um, short-level takeoffs uh, because taking off from a carrier was the distance was a lot less than it would have been if you're taking off from a, an actual uh, field and so they they did that and and then they 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 also were involved in, in other training like bombing runs and and, and just becoming familiar with um, you know, uh, different aspects of the airplanes. And, and then the planes themselves were outfitted with um, a lot of extra gas cans and um, a lot of the the required stuff that would have normally been on a B-25 that wasn't essential was stripped away for weight purposes. So um, in late, uh, they were in training at Pensacola from like late February till late March of 1942. And then um, late March of 1942, the crews took off from Pensacola or Eglin and, and went over to um, California and, and, uh, and uh, gathered together at uh, near Alameda. And um, once they got there, they, they selected... 16 of the planes to be put on the USS carrier Hornet and the the Hornet was part of an eight-ship task force that streamed out from San Francisco Bay on April 3rd, 1942 and and once it got out to sea a ways it met up with another eight-ship task force and then then the the 16-ship task force worked its way toward Japan and um, for the next couple of weeks they were um, working their way there and, and in the meantime the, the crews were checking over their planes making sure everything was was in good working order and and also getting um, 
additional training in terms of like where their uh, targets would be because they didn't know that they were actually going to Japan to bomb Japan until after they were on board the, the, the carrier Hornet. There was some speculation by members of the crews and stuff, but they were pretty much told to tamp anything down because of security concerns. So they, they really had no, uh, no real idea where they were going. And then about the second or third day they were out to sea, they found out. And um, that, that was a real uh, kind of a turning point for the Navy personnel because they really appreciated at that point the Army Air Corps personnel that were on board the ship. And um, so anyway, they cruised on out uh, across the Pacific and um, encountered some pretty rough weather. But um, on April 18th, which was like a, basically about a day and a half ahead of the time when they actually planned to do the raid, they were plan originally planning to take off on the evening of April 19th. But the morning of April 18th, uh, there were some Japanese picket boats that had been stationed out several hundred miles from Japan just so um, if there was any kind of an invasion force or, or any type of an attack toward Japan, it would be kind of an early warning system. And um, w those picket boats saw the task force, the task force saw the, the, the picket boats, and, and um, they, the task force subsequently sunk a couple of the picket boats. But they didn't know if the picket boats had radioed into Japan to say, hey, there's um, a task force coming this way. And um, so they couldn't wait. It was just time to take off. And even though they were about 200 miles further out than they had planned to be when they were going to take off on April 19th, the order was given to just go ahead and go. <clears throat> so basically, when they took off, they knew that they wouldn't have enough fuel to complete the mission basically after they had bombed Japan and make it back to China. So, so in, in essence, it was probably a suicide mission, but there, there was no, no going back. None of the guys, you know, um, uh, quit at that time. They just stuck with it. And um, all 16 of the planes made it to Japan. Uh, none of them were shot down. Most of them hit their targets. Um, it was a total shock to the Japanese, and part of the surprise with the element was the, the planes, the B-25s, kind of looked like a, a Japanese bomber that was similar to that. So there was some thought that maybe that was one of the reasons that the Japanese didn't pursue the, the, the planes to a great extent. And also, there had been an, an air raid um, uh, drill that morning, especially in Tokyo and stuff. and so. They, the, the Japanese populace just figured that, well, there was, um, you know, it's, it's no big deal. It's, I mean, it's, there's nothing really going on. And then when the bombs started hitting and stuff, that's, that's when things started to kind of escalate. But by that time, um, just about all 16 planes, which besides Tokyo, hit four other cities in Japan, um, w had hit their targets and were on their way uh, away from Japan and headed over to China. Um, but that's when, when the, the raid or the mission really became difficult for the, uh, the, the planes. One plane uh, crew went to uh, Russia because they, had, they were having some issues with their fuel consumption and, and they knew they wouldn't be able to make it to Japan, I mean to China. So they went to, to Vlad, they flew to Vladivostok, Russia and um, landed there and then they were interned in Russia for about a year before they escaped uh, into Iran. Um, the other 15 crews made it 
to China, um, but the, the, the original plan for the raid was that since they were going to take off at night and bomb and then make it back over to China, that it, they would be there like on the morning of the 20th, and there were some airfields that were supposed to be set up in, in free China where the crews could um, land and um, leave the planes for use uh, by other American troops later. But um, because they had to take off early, when by the time that they hit China, like the coast and, and flying over China, it was completely dark. And on top of that, a, a pretty intense rainstorm had blown up and visibility was pretty bad. So most of the crews ended up, uh, well, all, all 15 of the other crews ended up either bailing out over China and their planes just went down or like in my dad's case with crew number seven, they actually crash landed off the coast of an island and uh, crew number 15, which also ended up having a role in, in with my dad's crew, the mission doctor, uh, uh, Doc White actually uh, ended up saving the life of my dad's pilot, Ted Lawson. Um, they ended up uh, landing out in, in the, 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 south, the East China Sea uh, and um, ended up on an island after they um, move, moved into, after they uh, evacuated the plane. So from that point on, they went, <coughs> the, the crews that weren't captured, and there were actually two crews that were, um, and, and the guys that weren't killed, there was actually three that were killed. One, one guy, uh, Leland Factor, who is my dad's best friend on the, on the raid, um, was actually killed bailing out over China. They never did figure out if his parachute caught on the plane or, or if it just didn't fully deploy, but they found his body next to the plane when, when they, f they found the wreckage later. But he and then two of the other raiders that were with, with one of the crews that got captured actually drowned. Um, so um, three of them were killed outright, and then two of the crews were, were, were captured, um, and, they, and they ended up um, executing um, th three of the raiders that were in those crews, the Japanese did, and one of them uh, starved to death, and then there were four others that were, were tortured and kept um, prisoner by the Japanese for the duration of the war. And then the other raiders that uh, landed or, or that were able to, to bail out over China or in my dad's cruise case, um, crash land, ultimately those, those raiders were able to make it to safety with the help of the Chinese. Wow. <laughs> I think the Doolittle Raid is, is, um, is known for very good reason as, uh, as probably the most daring uh, certainly aeronautical uh, wartime achievement of, of, of the war. You know, medium, uh, Army medium bombers that were never designed to take off from an aircraft carrier doing that, uh, hitting Japan, what, uh, four months after Pearl Harbor? Mm -hmm. And then, um, and, and then, so all told, I, if I remember correctly, it was uh, out of the 80 men who took off, 72 survived the, the raid initially, is that right? Um, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, well, there was like the three, the factor that died after he bailed out and the two guys that drowned, mm -hmm. and then the three guys that were ex executed. So it was actually 70, 74, I think, that, um, well, it, in, in terms of semantics, the, one, yeah, the ones yeah. that, that actually immediately survived the raid, there was like three that, that immediately perished. 
did your uh, father, th- you know, m- maybe uh, as as the ship set out, did your father think he was going to make it through that mission? He uh, actually sat down and interviewed him at length um, in July of 2015 about his role in the raid, and and he. Um, he said he, I asked him, I said, Dad, were you afraid or, or concerned about not making it? And he said, no. He said, I was just really excited and we were all really eager to go. And, and he said, we were so well trained that I, I, I guess that, and, and the theory is, I, I think in, in like reading 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, Lawson, Lawson's book and some of the other books, you know, when you're looking at the perspective of going on a mission like that, you always think it's going to be somebody else that doesn't make it. And um, but he he told me he wasn't afraid. He 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 just felt like they were so well trained for that mission that that they were going to make it despite the odds. And I, so I I always thought it was interesting um, that your I mean your dad was one of the he was one of the unsung heroes of the whole deal, uh, especially for. For the crew of the ruptured duck because um he was one of the ones that was was not severely injured in the crash uh so your dad was really i mean he was kind of the scout he was the guy that was really kind of fighting to make sure they were they were taken care of everywhere um did he ever really talk about any of that i mean he was such a humble guy that that he was you know he was he was responsible really for for helping save that crew Mm -hmm. he um in in later years, he he got more open about his role in the raid and and also with his crew and stuff. But one thing that he always reiterated was, you know, people would come up to him and say, "Man, you're a hero." I mean, you know, uh, do you consider yourself to be a hero? And he would always say, "No, the heroes were the guys who didn't make it back." But um, there's a uh, debriefing uh, report uh, on the Doolittle raid that was done um, within about a month after the raid over in Chongqing, China, by a, a, a what I call a Renaissance guy named Marion C. Cooper, and um, he was a an Army an Army Air Corps intelligence officer, and he actually sat down and interviewed a number of the surviving raiders and asked them what their roles were and everything. And at that point, it, it was within a month of, of when it had happened. Dad was still real fresh-faced, real familiar with everything. And, and he pretty much spelled out, spells out in that report what he did. And um, Cooper pretty much said, um, it, 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 in reading the report, when I got a copy of it, it, it just brought, you know, put the hair on the back of my neck up, but, you know, just because of some of the things that he said about my father. And, and one of the things he said was, you know, he, that Dad should have been recommended for the Medal of Honor because he did save the lives of his crew, but, but Dad never, you know, like you said, he was a really humble guy. He never felt like he he was a hero. And in, in some of the last interviews that, that he he did, people would say, oh, you know, they, they, they gave you the silver star. What do you think about that? And he said, I've never considered myself to be a hero. I was just doing my job. Wow. And and to the point that, uh, could you tell me the story uh, or tell us the story that, that was it your sister that, that didn't realize? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's like I said earlier, when, when we were growing up, um, you know, I, I our, our family, our, our children, there were like five of us, two boys and three girls, None of us had any idea that 
dad was a Doolittle Raider, much less a hero and the subject of a book and a movie and stuff like that. He was just our dad. He went to work every day. He was the, uh, had a 30-year career with the U.S. Postal Service. He was the letter carrier in our neighborhood. And, um, you know, every day we would, we would um, have three meals together as a family. We'd eat, get up and have breakfast with him and my mom before he went off to work. We would come home from school because the schools that we attended were like within two and three blocks of our house. And since dad delivered the mail in our neighborhood, he would come home for lunch every day and my mom would fix us a lunch and then we'd have dinner together. But so, but there was never any real discussion about his uh, role in the raid or his role in the war or anything like that. The, the only thing that alluded to that was when we were kids, every year in April around the anniversary of the raid, my my parents would bring in a woman that would watch us kids and my parents would go off on what we thought was kind of like their annual April vacation. They'd be gone for several days and they'd come back and we'd all get like little souvenirs and stuff and there but there would be no discussion of the reunion or the Doolittle Raid or anything like that. Well when my oldest sister was a junior in high school she finally realized that dad was part of the Doolittle Raid when he showed up at, at one of her high school classes one day to talk about it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you imagine that? Uh, I just I, had a, I I just pictured being able to drive down the road or something and see the mailman and be like, oh, that, there's a Doolittle Raider delivering <laughs> the mail, you know. So you just, uh, just a, a minute or two ago, you mentioned um, the reunions, and this is one of the most unique traditions that uh, the Raiders had, you know, with versus any other, you know, group of, uh, of, of military people during the war. Can you tell us a little bit about how those reunions worked and the traditions that the Raiders had? Sure. Um, during the, uh, when, when the Raiders were all on the USS Hornet, Doolittle, uh, promised the guys that if they made it out, if the raid was successful, if they made it back, that he was going to throw them the biggest party that they had ever seen. And then in uh, 1946, after the war was over, he kept his word. They had their first reunion in Miami. And I think there were probably, I don't know, 30, 40 of the guys that were able to come to that. And it was just a wild event. I mean, the guys just got drunk. They were jumping in the pool and just just causing all sorts of trouble. And uh, the, the clerk at the hotel was so upset that he complained to management and he kept telling them, hey, you, got, you guys got to get out of the pool. It's like 2 or 3 in the morning. And so <laughs> when, when it was all done and said, they all, like, uh, signed some kind of a, a, a piece of paper and apologized for their behavior. And this guy had signatures of like 35 or 40 of the Doolittle Raiders. And then, <laughs> I hope he kept that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I believe he did. But from that point on, every year except for, I believe, two, one was during uh, the Vietnam War era, and, and there was another year, I can't remember when, maybe it was during Korea, but they had annual reunions that were held throughout the country. And my dad didn't start going until I believe it was like 1952. And um, he, in, it was another uh, reunion, I believe it was held in Miami. And he actually went to 40 of the reunions. And um, as time went on, he got more and more involved with the group, felt more comfortable. And, and it became uh, more in, in a more inclusive gathering as time went on because as the guys had kids, um, 
Joe, Joe Doolittle, Doolittle's wife, insisted that they needed to open it up where it wasn't just a good old boys gathering, that they needed to, to, to make it welcoming for the, the wives and the kids and stuff. So it became more of kind of a family gathering. And, and um, so, but as, as time went on, my, my dad got more and more comfortable with it. And, and as more of the Raiders passed away and, and he continued to live, he was actually like the second to the last surviving Raider before he passed away in uh, 2016. But he, he became more and more open about his role in the raid and, and when people would come up to him and ask him questions he, he would he was a lot more open and, and comfortable in talking to people about that can you talk about the uh the goblets yeah um in in 1959 um I'm i can't remember what the city was but but uh it's like tucson or yeah something that's like that. yeah, yeah sorry my mind just escapes me sometimes. The city of Tucson, Arizona, commissioned a, a, a silversmith to to create 80 silver goblets, and with uh, each goblet would have the name of the raider inscribed both right side up and upside down. And during each reunion, the raiders would have like a private business meeting, and they would gather and they would open up a bottle of, of Hennessy cognac and um, they would they would uh, pour the cognac in into the uh, the cups of the raiders that were there, and they would all offer a solemn toast to their fallen comrades. And w after the toast was over with, then they would turn over the uh, goblets of their fallen comrades. And um, in uh, after my dad passed away in uh, June of 2016, at the time there was just him and and uh, Dick Cole, Doolittle's co-pilot, that were left, and Dick is still with us. He's 103 years old. Um, but anyway, in 2017, when they had the 75th anniversary of the Doolittle raid, um, it was held at the the Museum of the U.S. Air Force in Dayton. They had a private ceremony and. Um, since, since they were going to recognize my dad, our family was allowed to, to go in and witness this and stuff. But, but uh, they poured uh, some cognac into a silver goblet, and Dick gave a toast to my dad. And then when he was done, he turned over my dad's goblet. Yeah, I think, um, uh, Chris, we were at, we were, well, I assume all of us were at the, uh, the, the, final, um, yeah. the final official Yeah, we were down for reunion. that event, yeah. Yeah. In Dayton, and we were holding the banner. That's right. <laughs> That's yeah, we, we, we had a banner. we had a little EA group that went yeah. down, and we're there for that. Yeah, that actually occurred in 2013, and that was technically the last official gathering of the Raiders. And at the time, there were four Raiders left. There was uh, Ed Sailor, who it, it's 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 kind of interesting because my dad and Ed were both from rural Montana, and. I guess it goes to show that they took good care of themselves or had really good genetics or whatever because they were two of the last four surviving Raiders. And then, of course, Dick Cole was there. And then uh, Bobby Height, who was one of the Raiders who had been captured and held prisoner uh, by the Japanese, he was still living, but he, he wasn't well enough to attend, so he participated long distance uh, from a, a facility where he was living in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, can you tell us a little bit about uh, a really unique experience you had where you traveled to China and 
you were there, right? You went to the crash site of some of the aircraft, including the ruptured duck, right? Yeah, um, yeah, Chris. Actually, I've been to China twice. Um, the first time, I was in, invited to uh, go over to China by the Chinese government uh, as a guest um, in September 2015 as part of the Chinese government's 70th anniversary celebration of the end of World War II. They, they called it the the war to end fascism or, or something like that. And the, the first few days that I was there, um, they, they put a bunch of us up, descendants of, of different groups that had helped the Chinese. Like there were, there were, and there were actually some representatives of, of these groups like that. There, there weren't any Doolittle Raiders there, but I was representing the Doolittle Raiders. But there were some of the Flying Tigers that were there. There were descendants of um, missionaries that had helped the Chinese and then some other groups. So it was really interesting getting to know and to meet and know some of these folks. And we kind of shared some stories and stuff. And then um, the, uh, the third day that I was there, the Chinese had this massive military parade in, in celebration of the event. And it, it was uh, kind of like President uh, Xi Jinping's coming out party. It was the first military parade that he had um, overseen. And it lasted for about two hours. And they uh, unveiled uh, um, military weapons that had never before been seen in public. Like they, they had several nuclear weapons that were, were carried along by trucks and by trailer and stuff and had a lot of... Uh, uh, different delegations of, of Chinese um, troops that were marching, like goose-stepping in the parade, and, the, and then there were um, also some foreign delegations. Of course, the U.S., the, the highest-ranking representative of the U.S. was the ambassador to China at the time, Max Baucus, who was um, my dad's home state senator before he became ambassador. And, um, but, but included among the dignitaries were like uh, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping and then the, uh, the, the president of South Korea at the time. And, and they had all of this on like big closed circuit um, TV and a big screen a across from where we were all sitting. Um, and it was in, in Tiananmen Square where they had the parade. So we, we were bused there. We watched the whole parade and um, watched all these dignitaries come in. And then they had some other events that occurred later in the evening. And, and um, like that night, they had a uh, what I, I would consider to be like a Broadway production of China's role in World War II. And they brought in these foreign dignitaries. And at, at one point, I was within like 20 feet of President Xi and Vladimir Putin. So I thought that was kind of cool. And uh, Putin's not a big guy. So he's pretty short. <laughs> but any, anyway, going back to – I digress. Going back to your question, after, after that official celebration, I had made contact with a friend of mine who lives over in Beijing with her husband, uh, Melinda Liu, who's affiliated with the Doolittle Raiders through her father, who, who was an honorary Raider, Tung Sheng Liu. He had actually helped save one of the crews of the Raiders. And so, um, and then uh, during World War II, he and his wife emigrated to the U.S. and um, had a family here. And, and uh, the Raiders reconnected with him and made him an honorary Raider. And so Melinda and her brothers are all involved with this organization that I had up, the, the children of the Doolittle Raiders. But anyway, I had contacted Melinda because she was living in Beijing, and I'd met her a year before and, um, you know, just thought, well, maybe while I'm there, 
we could get together for lunch while I'm in Beijing. Well, she, she emailed me back and said, hey, how would you like to um, go on a trip uh, down into uh, the, the inner part of China and, and kind of retrace your dad's footsteps after the ruptured dock crash line? I said, man, you got me. I, I mean, I'm, I'm all in for it. And so she and her husband, a guy named Ellen Babington Smith, uh, picked me up at the hotel that, where I was staying in Beijing. And um, they, we, we caught a flight to uh, uh, an airport called Ningbo. And then we were met by um, this uh, amateur Chinese historian, his name is Jing Weyong, who's, who's traveled all over China and um, actually researched a lot of the raider sites. I mean, he's, he's kind of made it his, his mission, aside from his daytime job and having a family, to do as much research as possible on the Doolittle Raid. And um, so anyway, he was familiar with where my dad's plane had crash landed, and he's got all these connections throughout China. And so um, he met us in Ningbo. He, he had uh, chartered a van, and, and so we, for the next few days, we drove through uh, Zhejiang province, went out to Nantian Island where my dad's uh, plane had crash landed, and, um, and, and from that point, pretty much retraced the, the steps uh, of my dad's crew for the most part. How did you uh, how did you feel being on the beach where where they got out? I, I call it my epiphany, Chris. I, w I was standing out there. It was uh, early uh, on a September morning. It was pretty chilly, and um, it, it was weird because the night before we we had been in this uh, small city on the other side of the island on the mainland. And we'd gone out to dinner, and the, the heavens had just erupted into this tremendous, like, thunderstorm. I mean, it was just flashing and crashing, and, and just it, the rain would not stop. And Melinda and I looked at each other, and we said, man, this is like what your dad went through when, when the plane crash landed on the island. So we took a ferry over to the island and, and drove to the beach, and I'm standing there on the beach, and, and all of a sudden I just got overwhelmed with emotion. I, I, I was just thinking to myself, man, my dad was on this beach 73 years ago, and, you know, if, if it wasn't for some circumstances, if, you know, if God hadn't been, you know, helping out their crew and stuff, he could have very well been killed in that, that plane crash when they crash landed. He could have been captured by the Japanese very easily because they almost were a couple of times. I mean, there were so many times when my dad could have either been captured or killed. And I just had this flood of emotion come through me. And, and I was just, you know, just felt so emotional at that time. And um, it, it was just a, a, a real moment where it, where it really went deep into my soul. Wow. What did your dad think about you being there today? Well, that night after we got got finished kind of doing our sightseeing, got back to the hotel, I called him. And, of course, my dad was still living at the time. This was in September of 2015. And I called him, and, and I spoke with him and told him exactly what we'd done. And, of course, my dad was a man of few words and stuff, but he was real interested what I had to say. But I, I, I could feel the emotion through the, the phone line, even though I was on a cell phone. You know, I could tell that it really meant a lot to him because he never went back to China, um, you know, after he was, was over there. And one of the things that he told me 
when I interviewed him in July of 2015 was that um, he said the Chinese had nothing, but they gave us everything that they had. They're very grateful for, for America's part in that. Yeah, yeah. And um, since I've been over there, um, as, as a result of my first visit, um, later on in, in, in our uh, our our driving through the, the interior of Zhejiang province, we, we uh, went to the city of Chuzhou, and that, that's a pretty famous area in terms of the raiders because there's a, a big cave there that was that's carved out of a small mountain. And a lot of the raiders uh, were kept there uh, when the Japanese were like bombing Chuzhou. They, they would put them in there and they would have cots and stuff. And the, the Japanese bombed Chuzhou daily. So they, they hid out there. And then when things got a little less less hot, then they would move, move some of them further inland and, and ultimately to safety in Chongqing. But um, when we were in Chuzhou, um, I, I made some connections with the, uh, the, some of the, ch the Chinese that live there. Specifically, um, I was hosted by a, uh, a middle school there, and uh, they actually planted a, a tree in my honor, and it, it was really a touching thing. And as a result of that, uh, this group that I had up, the Children of the Doolittle Raiders, we started a scholarship program for these middle school kids. And what, what they do is every, every year we have this contest where they write an essay. Anyone that wants to participate will write an essay in English about um, the, what they feel about the Doolittle Raid and what its impact was upon China and, and, and peace and, and the relations between Chinese and, and the U.S. And we, that was in 15, so we, we've, we've done this uh, uh, contest for, I guess it's been three years now. And, um, and each year, the, the uh, submissions have gotten better. And so in, in 2018, we had probably 13, 14 submissions. And I want to say just about every one of them was just excellent. And, and reading these words from these middle school kids, it really warms your heart. It really gives you hope for the future that, you know, behind all this posturing that our, our you know, leaders do on, on both sides of the equation, that, 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 that deep down, you know, the Chinese are, are just people like us, regular people like you and me. Like they, they put their pants on and their shirts on and they, they try to make a living every day and they're, they're you know, they've, they've got good values and integrity. But what's, what's, what's most amazing to me is they write these essays in English. Now, if, you, if we had a similar contest like that over here in the U.S. and we asked uh, American middle school students to write an essay in Mandarin, <laughs> it, it, it would never happen. Yeah. You know? I, mean, I mean, so I'm really impressed by that. Wow. And then one of the other things that we did is um, – when we were in Chuzhou, we uh, visited uh, the. It's called the 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 the, the municipal germ warfare museum, and a lot of Americans don't realize what a horrible price the Chinese paid as a result of helping the Doolittle Raiders to safety. Um, the China, the Japanese, when they realized that the Chinese had helped the Raiders, they embarked on a three-month campaign through Zhejiang Province, and they they ended up slaughtering 250,000 Chinese, 
and they inflicted uh, chemical and bacteriological warfare upon the Chinese as part of the slaughter. It, um, it rivaled the rape of Nanking. It was just horrific. So while I was there, we toured this uh, germ warfare museum, and it really struck me that, uh, you know, because I, I'm like a lot of Americans. I mean, yeah, I'm familiar with the Doolittle Raid and stuff, but I had no idea what level of agony and what level of, you know, just hor horrific torture and, and slaughter that the Japanese inflicted, on, inflicted upon these Chinese. And it would have been so easy for the Chinese, you know, to, to give up the Americans to the Japanese, but they hated the Japanese. I mean, the, the war for, for China officially began in, in 1937 with what was called the Marco Polo incident north of Beijing. But actually in 1931, the Japanese invaded China and took over Manchuria and installed a puppet government there. And they had been inflicting torture and slaughtering Chinese for years and years and years. So U.S. gets involved in the war in 41, from 41 to 45. And yeah, it was a, a huge um, uh, uh, burden for the U.S. and we lost a lot of people, but I mean, the Chinese lost millions and millions of people. And um, it could have been so easy for the Chinese to go, hey, yeah, these foreigners like bombed the Japs and, you know, we're going to like turn them in, but they didn't. They saved their lives. And as a result, they, the, many of them lost their lives. And it was just a, a tragedy. So after I went to that German warfare museum, Melinda Liu and I were talking and I said, man, wouldn't it be great if we could have have uh, get with the city of Chijou and have a municipal hall erected in honor of the Doolittle Raiders. And she said, yeah, I think that's a good idea. And so as a result of that, I started writing letters to municipal officials in Chijou, and they said they were agreeable. They said they would, they would find a, an old building in, in the downtown area and they would restore it. And if we would donate Raider artifacts and materials, and if we would help with like the translation of the of the uh, display, the language for the displays and stuff, and so we did. And so over a, a course of period of time, from September of 15 until uh, late September of 18, we worked on this project together. And then when I when I led a, a group of Raider children, grandchildren, and friends back over to China in October of 2018, they had the grand opening of the Memorial Hall to the Raiders. And it's, uh, I was so proud to be a part of that event. And it, it just, I mean, the, you know, I'm just like a common Joe in America, but I mean, you know, if, if, if you can make an effort, if you can try to reach out to people that you meet, regardless of their their race, their creed, their, you know, religion, their, you know, their nationality. They're just like you and me, and, and, and we've, got a, we've got common ground there. And, and I was so proud when, when we dedicated that ceremony and opened it up, and it's a beautiful facility. It's just uh, really warms, warmed my heart when I was able to be there for that. Yeah, I'll echo what you say, say about the Chinese people. I had the opportunity to go there in um, uh, this past fall for a wedding, mm -hmm. and uh, it, it was it was an incredible experience uh, for for those of us who went. It was amazing. Um, before we go, Chris, you have uh, a really great story about meeting some of the Raiders a couple of uh, years ago <laughs> at AirVenture. Do you want yeah. to tell that real quick? Yeah, I, I told Jeff already. Uh, um, my first time ever getting to meet any of the Doolittle Raiders, um, I was simply told that uh, I was going to go interview somebody. 
to go over to the this trailer uh and that uh you know that's where i would do my oral my my oral history interview and i'm like okay so i go over to this air-conditioned trailer and they said uh, oh the guys are in there that you're going to interview go ahead in and get comfortable uh we're still waiting on one more uh, gentleman that's going to sit in on the interview and i said oh okay great and i opened up the door and walked in and there was uh your dad, uh, Dave, uh, you know Dave Thatcher, and uh, there's Dick Cole, uh, and they're sitting there wearing their they had polo shirts. It said, you know, there's the Doolittle Raider crest, and and I'm like, oh my God, these are Doolittle Raiders, you know, <laughs> and they said, so don't start because it was Larry Kelly who owned Panchito. Uh, he's going to come and sit in on the interview as well, um, so he's on his way. You have a few minutes, and I'm just sitting there. And I'm like, what do you what do you say? You're sitting in a room with Abraham Lincoln. I mean, and, you know, say something. You know, I could just feel myself say, "Oh my God, make small talk." And the only thing that popped out of my mouth was, uh, I said, "What did you guys think of Tokyo?" And uh, your dad laughed, and, and Dick got a big smile on his face, and he says, "Well, we didn't stop." <laughs> so uh, I thought that was fantastic. But uh, um, but you know, the one last thing, the last question I, I did want to mention here, I, I guess, is. Uh, um, I think it's great that, I mean, it's obviously sad that we're losing our Raiders, but it's great that the families are keeping the reunions going. Uh, that's got to be pretty, is it something you look forward to every year, getting together with everybody? Yeah, yeah, actually, uh, the children of the Dude Little Raiders are going to be gathering uh, over the weekend of April 18th to the 21st down at Fort Walton Beach, uh, Florida, a couple weeks from now. And we're going to have a toast on April 18th to uh, commemorate the raid. And, and uh, we're hoping that Dick Cole can join us and lead the toast. But, uh, yeah, it's really gratifying because um, I've made a lot of good friends through the organization. And, um, like I said, we, we've got some initiatives that we do. Besides the, uh, the China scholarships, we've got a domestic scholarship program where we provide uh, funding for uh, a scholarship each year to, to two uh, descendants of Raiders. And so, and we're, we're trying to get the younger generation involved. And then besides that, a lot of us branch out and, and do different things like me coming up here to EAA to talk about the Doolittle Raid. Um, our mission as, uh, as the children of the Doolittle Raiders is to keep the legacy of the Doolittle Raiders alive. Well, again, I can't thank you for coming up here. Uh, you're here because you're going to be uh, introducing our movie, uh, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, this uh, month. Every first Thursday of the month, we have a movie night. And uh, I'm looking forward to having you talk and give us some insight into the film. Um, but, uh, again, for all of you guys uh, at home listening, we appreciate your support. We appreciate you listening. Uh, love getting uh, reviews uh, when you can uh, do that please do it, it matters uh, a lot to all of us here to be able to get to see that and and uh, take your feedback to heart um, and until uh, next episode uh, you are cleared to land on the green dot <laughs> <laughs>